Welcome to Kitchen Table, candid conversations about sex, relationships, and being human. I'm Brittany Paula Castro. And I'm Nick Anthony. And today we're talking to Key Alexander about abolition and healing justice. Hey, Nick. Hey, Brittany. I'm excited about our guest today. Why? Because our guest is as a special place in my heart. I've known Key for many, many years. And they recently became a doctor, got their PhD, and pretty dope, pretty dope. that is fucking amazing. And to be able to watch someone's journey like that, and um, I just feel really inspired by them. And I'm excited to have this conversation and to learn from them. I've always found anytime I've shared space with them, it's been my heart explodes. Yeah. <laughs> so much love, like straight up. Yeah. Yeah. You're all in for a treat with Key. Key and I met when, uh, and I'm sure we'll talk about this a little, they used to practice yoga with me and then took a teacher training. And then we went on to teach at the same studio. And I always, whenever I had needed a sub, I was like, Key, you have to do it because <laughs> always. I remember that. Because I just knew that like, my community of people would be taken care of because we had that kind of same soul empowered yes. way of speaking truth mm-hmm. right, in our own way, mm-hmm. right? Based off of, you know, our lives. But I always really trusted he to be able to bring it. Trust was when you were talking about that, like the word trust, like was really yeah. dominant in my my mind while you were saying all that. I was like, trust, it's all trust there. It's a lot yeah. of trust there. Yeah, there is. And I mean, I think trust is important, <laughs> right? In relationships and not just like romantic relationships. Everywhere. I think trust, because I think everything oftentimes goes to romantic relationships. People I work with, mm-hmm. people I'm friends with, the trust essentially, it broadens and expands everything and it mm. helps us go deeper, open up more. Like without trust, I don't, yeah, it's just, I don't want to live in a world where my relationships don't have that center in yeah. them. I want to feel like I'm being taken care of. I mean, don't we all want to? Yeah. Are you intentional about that though? Is that something that you really, that you think about? I think about it and I'm aware of it. And if it's not there, I'm like, mm. the, the lacking of it, I'm uh, very aware of. How do you know it's not there? Like, how, what do you feel? I just feel like a twinge in me. It's just a hesitation for me wanting it to moving forward or, mm-hmm. uh, you know, engaging or uh, throwing extra energy into something. If, I, if I'm not feeling like a reciprocation and a certain mm. just like a uh, value in someone like a, if I don't feel like I'm being held. Your hands keep creating this yeah. container. It feels like trust is a container for you. Like yes. it helps you to feel contained in an empowered way. Mm-hmm. I mean, I wouldn't be who I am without yeah. trust you know, myself and others. Yeah. That's the next thing I was going to say is that I think even more importantly is trust in ourselves. Mm-hmm. Right. Because then, you know, safety, for example, I talk about that a lot. It's like when we don't have that safety within ourselves, we seek it out. It's a little different, but we seek it out in, in others. How can others make me feel safe? Yes. I think that could happen a little bit with trust as well. Oh, yeah. You know, absolutely. Like, oh, I need to trust this person. It like it becomes like this obsession almost or something, or like a, I'm gripping my hands, right? So this grip. Mm-hmm. And it's like, okay, like how much do we trust ourselves? This is true. Yeah. But also, if someone loses that trust, I can get why how that could create waves for a lot of people and, and make people want to push people away. Of course. If it, like if you're in a situation and your trust has been broken. Because like, trust creates safety. Yeah. And like, you don't feel safe anymore. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So. <laughs> 
<laughs> we went off on a tangent, but it was a good one. It was a good tangent. And now we'll be talking to the person that I trust. <laughs> so dope. Let's do it. <laughs> Welcome to Kitchen Table. I'm Brittany. I'm Nick. And today we have a very special guest, Key Alexander. So Dr. Key Alexander is a queer, trans, Black, Puerto Rican scholar, educator, and organizer. They recently received their PhD candidate in education, curriculum, and instruction with a focus on culture and teaching from the University of Minnesota. Their work and scholarship centers queer Black feminist praxis, Black trans studies, transformative justice, abolition, and healing justice. Believing education is a practice of freedom. Key strives to center personal transformation and healing in every educational space. Love that so much. They have the honor to hold and co-create Welcome, yeah. Dr. Keith. Yeah. <laughs> I wanted to say that for so long. <laughs> like publicly out loud. Yes, yes. Welcome. Thank you. Oh, my goodness. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, absolute pleasure. Slow claps and finger snaps. First yeah. to just like hearing like your bio and just like, uh, just really uh, having it settle in my body how like, like necessary and needed like mm-hmm. that is in the world, period. It's just like, yes, thank you so much yes. for the work you've done. And first question, how much of a badass do you feel based off of, you know, being a doctor and stuff? So, <laughs> to get that uh, don't, PhD. Don't hold back. That's just so like, funny. Out, you know, <laughs> this is new. I love that. It's brand new. Like I said, this is the first interview I'm doing as a doctor, so I really appreciate that. I'm thinking the thing that came to my mind was Issa Rae asking Zendaya, like, if she wakes up and looks in the morning every day and just says, these bitches can't take it. And that's a little <laughs> bit how I feel. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Just a little bit. You know, getting a PhD as a black trans person is like a very complicated situation. Like 1% of the population has a PhD and 1% of those are black people. And then I'm sure, you know, I know like three black trans people with a PhD. So I think I feel really grateful. Like my village got me here. And also it's just like a bunch of weird, highfalutin gatekeeping, right? So I have a complicated relationship with being an academic. But I try to do what I can. I try to teach the babies and I try to use the resources that the university affords me to share that with the communities I work with. So it makes me feel good when I know that I can actually, with Robin Hood style, like take things from the university and give (laughs) them to people. That makes me feel like a badass. But the general doctor, I mean, it's cute when people call me doctor. You missed, there was like a little head patty, like, yeah, <laughs> you rest it. And... Rest on the edge. <laughs> I love it. And so your focus here, which I love, that your work and scholarship centers queer Black feminist practice. Am I saying that correctly? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Can you tell me a little bit more? Tell us a little bit more about what that means. Yeah. So I think praxis is a really great word to think about how I think of it as like our commitments, like our values, the things that we honor, like theoretically our ideas, right? And then our practices, like what we do and put it into action. And so when I think about what a queer Black feminist praxis is, I think it's a way of like living and seeing the world that honors the way 
that systems of oppression, particularly racism, particularly anti-Black racism, sexism, patriarchal violence, cis-heterosexuality, right, as like these confines, the ways that it impacts people's everyday lives and how it impacts both the ways they think about the world and also how they act in the world. And so I think I'm very fortunate to study with lots of Black feminist teachers It's a way of understanding how race and gender work together to create these dynamics that oppress particularly Black folks who are women, gender nonconforming, trans people, people who are, you know, gender oppressed. So yeah, I think it's a way of like seeing the world that has helped me figure out who I am in relation to the rest of the world and also figure out the world that I want to see one day and what we need to do to like make that world a reality. Key, what is your vision for the world? What does that mean to you? Mm, I have so many visions for the world. (laughs) Yeah, it's like so many visions for the world. (laughs) I think, you know, at the end of the day, I want a world where Black trans people can be free to live their fullest, most authentic lives. And we don't live in a world that affords that, unfortunately. And I think it's one of those things where this is also something Black feminists have taught me that, you know, until Black women, Black gender expansive people, Black trans people are free, nobody can get free. And when those folks are free, it's because all the other systems of oppression, like I said, racism, classism, patriarchy, they are being addressed. And when those things are all addressed, then everybody benefits from them. You could be a cis straight white dude and Black feminism is still going to get you free, right? And so I think I want to see where people get to love and be in relationship in ways that are not towards like a capitalist means, right? Not towards just, you know, we're taught to like make a profit off of everything, especially our relationships. And so how do we like build relationships that are built on authenticity, joy, connection, erotic, right? In a particular way that's about, you know, sensuality, feeling, like actually feeling in your body and not separating that from the sensations you feel. Yeah. So like when we have relationships that are based on those things, that brings us joy and connection and we need each other, you know, and we live in a really individualist society. We're like humans aren't wired for that. So when I say the vision of the world, I see people making families and communities that are based in respect and authenticity, consent, things that make people feel like they're valued, no matter what kind of labor they do, what kind of offerings they bring, that you have a place in this earth and you deserve to have your basic needs met. You know, we all deserve education, healthcare, food, shelter, all those things, just for being people, not because we work for something. Yes. Yes. Just because we are. It really does boggle and hurt your heart to hear people push back against that simple, straightforward truth of like, you're a human being. Yeah, I don't want you to be afraid to to exist. Like, simple. And then also people hearing, I didn't hear people hearing what you just said and feeling threatened as if they're going to lose something in that space. When I look on Mm. the podcast Man Enough, like made a comment, don't let your latent disconnection be fooled as a character trait. Yeah, it's just like, ooh, I was like, ooh, like, I listened to that podcast multiple times. That but, episode. Ooh, oh, yeah. So, 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 much, like, so much power in that. So much power. 
so, so good. And it's just, it's that simplistic. And it just confuses me, especially when it comes to other people of color, black people personally who hear, who have pushback against people being offered and given rights as if they're going to be losing anything. It's just like, I'm like, how of all people are we going to be, you know, did the civil rights movement not like stick or have any effect on you? Basically, it's just like, we can't be running through these streets and just like trying to take our, what we've gained and abuse it and use it against people again. But it feels like people want to feel like superior and use that privilege that they gain to kind of put people down. And it's just like, no, that's not the key. That's not the answer. So it just, it really, it stings and, and frustrates me to like see people, the energy and that vibration and whew, we got a lot of work to do. Yeah. Trauma will really fuck you up. And I think there's ways in which, you know, because we live in such an individualist society that we don't think about the ways that we've experienced these collective traumas. You know, people are like, the pandemic's over. I was like, we're all traumatized, y'all. Stop it. Yes. Like, yes. Stop it. <laughs> Things are over. not the way they were two years ago. No. Stop <laughs> it. Like, yeah. And I think that people don't realize that when we live in a world that teaches us that these ideas are kind of in a binary fashion, right? That if you get something, that means I lose something. There's only so much. It's a scarcity mentality, right? There's only so much. You get this. And if you get more, that means I get less, right? But it's actually like we're abundance. There's like more than enough resources for all the people that exist in the world. It's just that we're taught through commodification that there's only so limited, right? And so then we see, I mean, I think that makes sense when we see traumatized groups of people, Black folks, queer folks, Jewish folks, like, right? Like, folks who have had collective trauma, that that is something that we have to really reckon with as a community to figure out like, oh, like we're threatened because we've been threatened so many times. And that's a natural response. Like I have compassion for that. It is natural to get into protective mode and we cannot be abusive to other people because we happen to be abused. It is this reckoning of like, we have to really break from this like one or the other and recognize that like where our humanity is connected the things that bring me down, even if we might have different identities, are also bringing you down because you also don't know what it's like to have a full life with people who are different from you when we're taught that it's like stick to the same, stick to what you know, safety, security. And when we're traumatized, that's like a natural response. So I try to have compassion for that and also like being firm that like we don't need to stay there. No, not at all. I don't fuck around <laughs> with this like blatant overt shit happened in front of me. It's just like, mm, nah, that's not cool. I'll be covering a wedding and a groomsman or will say something like offensive. I'll be like, nah, that's a little sus. Mm, you should check that. You should check that. Or, or, or an old white man would be like, hey, brother. And I'll be like, don't call me brother. No, not today. <laughs> not today, Satan. I don't like it. I don't like that. <laughs> so yeah, I hear you on that for sure. Absolutely. And I think there's also, you know, there's structures in place that keep people from being able to receive certain tools to help with these things like therapy and counseling, Mm -hmm. right? Like when we, you know, when we look at the systems of oppression, like there's also that, right? And so there's all of this trauma and then there's not a way to heal this trauma, to have support because we need support for that shit. We can't do that shit on our own. Mm -hmm. So not only do we need support, but we need community. And which is what you're really talking about, Key, right? Is that we've been traumatized collectively and in, you know, different groups have been traumatized collectively. And I think, you know, the healing is going to be really powerful when we can heal collectively and when we can come together in 
that very particular way. Mm -hmm. It's easy to feel hopeless. America is still wrestling with its fundamental wound. Oh, yes. Yeah. We can't even acknowledge that our country is built on this foundation that was about indigenous genocide and anti-Black racism. That's what it was literally created. And if we can't say that, how are we ever going to like heal that? So I think part of it is, yeah, that continued of like, we have to speak the truth and be honest about it. And, you know, we can be compassionate and we love a boundary. (laughs) We can be compassionate about saying, oh, how this impacts you. And also like, I'm not okay with that. My boundaries are about what I am willing to participate in. And so I don't do that shit. (laughs) I don't partake in that, right? It can really be that simple. So yeah, we have to stand firm in telling the truth. And also recognize that the truth is hard for some people. And I can recognize and honor that people can have their feelings about it, even though I don't have to be responsible for those feelings. That like rings in my oh, head. Yeah. We love a boundary. That's echoing in my and that's head. everything. That's in relationships. Yes, that's absolutely. in like everything. Mm-hmm. What you just said. Mm-hmm. Everything. Ooh, we do that all the time. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. I see your feelings yeah. and okay, you can have your feelings and I'm not going to get tangled in your feelings. Oh shit. Now I'm getting tangled yeah. in your feelings. Okay. Let me take a step back. Those feelings are not my feelings. Yeah. It's a dance. Yes. It really yes. Is. And I have so many feelings. I have a Scorpio moon. So it's just like, oh, shit. <laughs> okay. I'm a Pisces so like, moon. So I feel you. Yes, like these water moons, you know, like we can really get in there. And so I really have to be good about being like, you know what? That's yours. This is mine. An empath. Yeah. Direction. <laughs> it's like my cup overfloweth with emotion. My therapist was like, "You are very porous. <laughs> How porous do you want to be in any given situation?" Yeah. And I was like, "Oh mm-hmm. yeah, mm-hmm. yeah." Different grades. <laughs> it's hard to remember that yeah. when you're being porous mm-hmm. <laughs> in the moment. Yeah. <laughs> right. That's I'm like, so real. damn it, wait. I gotta not stop it. <laughs> gotta flex that muscle. Gotta flex that muscle. As you that. said, we love a boundary. And we love it. <laughs> and and I, love <laughs> I can't get with that. I can't be where you at right now because <laughs> it's too much. And I got to take care of myself. Okay, bye. <laughs> and I can feel that. I can feel because part of me as being, and we, we talk about this in like every episode, yeah. being anxiously attached mm-hmm. with our insecurity. Thank you very much. <laughs> I've done my work. Yes. But part, right, part of that is wanting other people to get into my emotions, especially my partners, mm-hmm. right? Wanting that, wanting them to be in there. The messy stuff and even like the beautiful stuff, right? I had that recently with my partner where I had this like really powerful experience of understanding love and I expressed that and he like received it, but he didn't jump in it with me. Mm-hmm. I felt it. And I was like, oh, damn. Mm-hmm. Like he didn't get tangled in that either. Yeah. Right. And I was like, wait, there was a part where I noticed myself being, why is he like really in this with me? Get in this. Merge with me in this moment. <laughs> jump off that cliff, motherfucker. <laughs> That's the part. That, right? That was that piece that I love, right? That was like, hey. But I felt that and I felt safety in that. Yeah. Right? I was like, oh, you can receive me, but you don't have to stand even the good stuff. Yeah. Because that's my moment, right? That's my moment of whatever, of messiness, of trauma, of beauty, of love. Like, can we stand in that moment 
and be there and yeah. receive ourselves as others receive us. I feel like that's popped up in our relationship. Oh God, yeah. Over, over the years for sure. <laughs> like you play me something music wise or in me, you'll be like, yeah, son, this is dope. I just did that today. I, yeah. Yeah. You were just, it's like, like, why don't you think, why, why aren't you excited? You're not as, ex- you don't think it's as big as I do. Why don't you think it's as big? I just, that I just, is so <laughs> real. I think that has been some of my best learning, right? Of being in like, I've been thinking about it and I was like, you know, I know you all and I remember when you first started dating. It's just so magical to see the like longevity, right? Because I remember when she's like, I got a cute new boyfriend. And I was like, oh my God. I remember this, right? And because Nathaniel and I had just, we're also first started dating around that time. And I think, and you know Nathaniel, you know, and he's changed a lot, but I think he is such a very different human than me. And we like compliment really well, but we are like, absolute opposite humans like we just function differently and i had to learn that like sometimes the hard way of just like here's this thing i'm very excited about (laughs) aren't you excited too and like he literally just doesn't emote the way that i do and he's just like i'm very excited for you love i'm very excited (laughs) for you yeah and we know nathaniel and like yeah that's steady grounded chill yes just like (laughs) very excited for you love congratulations and i'm just like what (laughs) no 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 no. and i took it personally i took it personally for a long time i was like you hate me you don't love me like you know but i was like oh this is actually this other or like he would tell me he was something really excited about and i'd be like Wow, and he was like, "Too much," <laughs> you know. And I'm like, "Okay," <laughs> you know, like, like I'm excited, but you can't be more excited for me, right? Or you can't be angry for me, or you. And I'm like, "Oh, you're right," because I have to be really like when he tells me about work, I got to be like, "Who I got to cuss out?" Nobody. I'm just telling you my feelings. And I was like, "You're right. You're right." But I think it's a gift to be able to have some type of partnership that allows you to like cultivate that muscle because I now I'm just like much, I don't take things personally in other parts of my life now because I'm like, oh, like that's your feeling, but that's not actually about me. And like, I can hold space for that or I cannot, but you know, that's really, really different. And I think it's helped with every type of relationship that I have, which has been a blessing. <laughs> Why aren't you excited? Oh, you hate me. <laughs> that's fantastic. Oh, too much. It's real. That's so funny. It's real. And the moment for me was when I realized it and I was like, oh, this is okay. This doesn't take anything away from my experience yeah. of feeling this. And that, for me, feels very liberating, very, you know, rooted in that safety that I don't need someone else to feel the same way as me in order to feel safe. And that's been a long journey journey to get there. (laughs) Oh, yeah. It's not like, it's not like, okay, now I'm done. (laughs) It will keep going. There is no end. We are on the path. We are on the path. You it's happening. You're staying on it. And it, if you commit to it, you're staying on it for I mean, like a long time. Even if you're Forever. not. Even if you're not like trying, you're still yeah. on the path. And like, it's going to happen no matter what. It's just, we naturally evolve. We naturally change. And you got to accept and receive. Mm-hmm. Receive that. See, I have this quote behind me. This change quote. All that you touch, you change. All that you change, it changes you. That's it. Ah, uh, yeah. 
That's powerful. Sorry, yes. I keep going. I didn't mean to interrupt. No, that's okay. <laughs> no, that's a good. I was like, yeah. I closed my eyes. I was like, yeah. Mm-hmm. As we're talking about this change, right? Let me pull that in. <laughs> what does it mean, right, to be on this path of change in relationship to healing justice, right? Because I love that healing justice. What does that mean, right? And how does that impact the way we change? Great question. So I think healing justice is a political framework that is basically trying to think about that there's like healing in justice and then there's justice in healing. And I think I started getting into healing justice work when, you know, I had studied to become a yoga teacher and I was like, I'm going to quit my nonprofit job to be a yoga teacher. What a choice. It was a great choice. It changed a lot of amazing things in my life. But I remember that I I was so curious about it because I was meeting all these people in nonprofit world who were doing social justice work, who were super burnt out. And just like the work was hard. It was grading on them. You know, they were just super burnt out. And I was like, I started practicing yoga and it's changing my life. Why aren't more people who are in like into justice, like doing this yoga thing? Oh my God. And I wanted it. Like when I first started yoga, I wanted to scream from the rooftops about it. You know, I wanted to be like, I found this thing. I'm alive, you know? And then on the flip side, once I got deeper into my study of yoga, I was recognizing that like, I was one of the only people who looked like me in the room, right? And I was seeing all these people who were talking about wellness and healing, but like couldn't have a conversation about race or couldn't have a conversation about gender or couldn't have a conversation about classism, right? And I was like, what's happening here? There's like, there's no talk about justice, when we're in these healing spaces. And I was like, there has to be a middle ground. And I was fortunate enough to be connected to a network of like politicized healers, right? People who were recognizing that, you know, systems of oppression cause harm and trauma. If we're actually going to say that we're invested in healing in a collective way, we have to recognize the ways that systems of oppression are at work and impact those traumas, right? Because we have our interpersonal traumas, And then we have systematic traumas, right? Collective traumas. And those are multiple levels. And if we're not thinking about how justice, like a justice-oriented lens shapes the way we think about that healing, we're really missing a big integral part of like what healing offers our communities. And so I think healing justice is a place where people have landed to think about, yes, how do I think about healing in a politicized way that when I'm helping people heal, that we are working towards a world you know, that is more free, more just, and that when we're working towards justice, that it can't be this like fight, 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 aggression, aggression, aggression all the time. We do have to like, there's other type of work that gets us to where we want to go. What is the care work that is part of our movements, right? That I always think when you see a direct action, there's like, You know, there's all the people you see on the street and then there's like all the people behind the scenes that you never see who like help coordinate, help people get food, help people get water, make sure people are sleeping, like how people are getting housing, like these things like that, like how people sustain these movements. And so I think healing justice is a really great framework and it's a landing place for people who want to do healing work towards a vision of justice. So when I think about change in relation to all that, like... I think it's a fundamental like principle. You have to be comfortable with change. And I think change is something that's so interesting because I think people are like, yes, we want change, we want change. But then when it's like, are you willing to like change the like very intimate parts of your lives, not just the public parts of your lives? And then I think people get like, oh, 
do I want to change that? You know, and I think that's why, you know, I think of a framework like abolition that has been, I think, like a compass for me. And I think that for me, abolition is a healing justice practice. When we're thinking about the ways that prisons and police are used in our society, it's we're saying that incarceration is how we should solve our social problems and not actually getting into the root of like what causes violence, what causes poverty, what causes these things. And so we only have a response. We don't have like a preventative measure. And I think there's these this like binary question that comes up is like, should we have police or no? And I think the more important question is what keeps our community safe? And I think it's a tactic to keep us in this binary question of like, we could argue yes or no all day. But like, the reality is, is that we haven't figured out what keeps our community safe. We're still seeing violence. We're still seeing all these things, right? For me, I think change has to show up in every level from my relationship with myself to my relationship with my partners to my relationships with my communities to my, you know, my local hood, you know, all this kinds of thing. And yeah, change also means that we have to deal with grief, right? Because grief is a natural response to losing something and change means there's going to be a loss of some sort. I think we can think about loss in an abundance mindset, right? It's not like some things, we have to clear the path for something to make way for other things. I think that's what yoga taught me about like not being afraid of fire and even the fire energy in my own body. I'm just like, having, sorry, I'm having lots of memories because I'm just like, I know you're in Aries. And I think that when I started yoga, Brittany was one of my very first yoga teachers. And so I just like want to put that out there. So like Brittany was one of the people who helped bring yoga into my life. And it was a very transformative time for me and was also the person who trained me to be a yoga teacher. And so I think that there are all these ways that you know, and that was like like 11 years ago, 12 years ago almost, right? And so Wild. it's been a long time. And that I think like, <laughs> right? And I'm thinking about the ways that like there were lessons that I didn't quite get then that make so much sense to me now. And I think one of those was thinking about fire and thinking about a fire energy and having that kind of energy. And I'm an air sign, so I can make a fire real big, real quick, unintentionally. Uh-huh. <laughs> and I think that you know, for me, the loss of kind of like, we have to clear a path to make space for other things because the universe is based on an exchange. And exchange is not the same as one or the other because it's reciprocity. It's dynamic. It's always going back and forth. So I think when I think of change, like I have to be able to step into that energy of I'm offering this and I might get this in return and I have to let go of this and make space for this that kind of dynamic energy of change. And I think that when we live in a carceral world, the world tells us that change is bad, that change is, you know, that's the thing that keeps you unsafe. Like if we're going to dare to imagine a world that looks different than ours, that's actually going to be the detriment of us and not the fact that we're suffering right now. So all of that is to say that I think change is something that people have to really get comfortable with. And that means getting comfortable with grief, conflict, just the fact that our bodies react, even if our minds want to do something else and making space for that. And I think if we don't have a comfortable practice with that, you know, then all the the work we do is fluff if we're not actually willing to have a relationship with the way that change shows up in our lives. Oh, slow claps. I had to take a drink of water myself after that. I I just (laughs) let that sink in, my friends. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, Yeah. So much (laughs) to talk about. 
think the biggest thing that stood out for me, Key, with what you said, there are several, but the one that's like landing in my body in a different way than it has before was that in order to embrace change, you must also embrace grief. I'm sure people have talked about that. You know, we all receive things differently in different times. And for some reason that felt, it landed in a different way for me. And I don't think that that's talked about enough in what I see in the sense of we need to grieve this shit, you know, like it needs to, I'll speak for myself as a white woman. I've done that, right? There has absolutely been that. The feeling that discomfort in my body and feeling that grief of seeing the reality of who I am sometimes and how I show up and how that being with that white fragility and seeing myself in all of that shit, not turning away from it because it's fucking uncomfortable. And, you know, the grief though, I think we do a lot to avoid grief, you know, and to avoid pain. And this is painful. You know, it's suffering. Yes. Again, like I see a lot of white people just so afraid to look at that shit. And, you know, there was a time when I was afraid to look at it and didn't even realize I needed to. You know, speaking of you being in the very first teacher training that we ever had, I went through the fire with that shit because, you know, Key, you really were like, no, (laughs) and this and that. And, you know, and no, I learned as much as I taught, you know, (laughs) in different ways. I learned a lot. And that was, I don't want to say interesting because that doesn't really mean it was a really powerful time of change for me because I was dating Nick and a lot of stuff was coming up for me in that relationship of being with this amazing black man and bearing witness to him in a way that I probably never was bearing witness to a person of color ever in my life, as intimate as we got and as much as I was able to see you. And then being in this teacher training where, you know, we were pushed to get, you know, back against in certain ways, which I'm so happy that we were, it was hard and it was uncomfortable, but I really feel like you being there um, and Nathaniel, right? And Clarice also, which people don't know these people, but they're amazing. Mm -hmm. But there was this opportunity that there was this moment of like, this is your reckoning, Brittany. And you can either fucking show up and like, listen, or you can continue to be ignorant and cause damage and harm. And I'm not saying I got it right for a while. (laughs) It's a a tough road. And even while we're doing those things, Yes, (laughs) Yes, <laughs> and there were moments where I, I would feel like you would want me to kind of like, oh, oh yes, I, oh, you will go that person, Brittany. Like, and I'd be like, is this okay? Oh. Did I say the right yeah. thing? <laughs> yeah. And every now and then, I, I'd be happy to offer, like, that's reasonable. But other times, I'd be like, I'm gonna let you hold on to that. That's yours. I mean, I'm, I'm gonna let you say boundary that on your own. We love a boundary. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, mm, okay, <laughs> love a boundary. Yes, 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 yes. <laughs> I really want to acknowledge that. Acknowledge you, Key, for, you know, again, that was all just kismet. <laughs> you know, the, it really was. People push back against this. And I'm grateful. I mean, I also learned a lot from that process. For me, I think it was, how do I describe it? I feel like it's like, you know, it's like two sides of the same coin, right? Where it's like, because I think there's, as my teacher, I think there are also ways that like, in having a struggle with you, I learned to have my own voice and be my own teacher, which I think is like every yoga teacher's dream in the end, right? Is like, find the teacher in you, right? And I remember in that space, like, 
watching and being witness. And now I feel like it was so much more intimate than I think I like gave credit to in the moment, but like watching people find their voice, right? Watching people figure out how to say, how to like give somebody a very direct command. And I remember some of my classmates really struggling with that. And I had been a facilitator, so I was like comfortable telling people what to do. (laughs) Right? So I was just like, okay, put your foot here. Yes, right? But I think what I had to learn on the flip side was also just like the vulnerability and the compassion for like the ways that people are like, I am fucking this up, but I'm still here. I hadn't had a lot of people willing to sit through the fire before. So because of that, I was just like, oh, of course you're going to, oh, your feelings are up. But I think now I'm just like, wow, actually there are these people who are really like, I don't know how to do this, but like, I care about you enough to be here. And I think that is important because I think it also taught me that, you know, there as a teacher, as someone who's going to hold space for other people, that that finding your own voice means that sometimes you're going to disappoint other people. Other people's feelings are going to be hurt, but you still have to do the thing you have to do for you, right? And I could have been scared because I didn't want to, you know, upset my teacher or have you think differently of me or whatever, you know, and at the time also too, like the precarity of like trying to be in that business of being like, whose classes am I going to sub if nobody fucks with me? (laughs) (laughs) Right? These like material realities of like being in this business that is about wellness, but is actually super fucking cutthroat. And it's actually really hard for people to make a living out of, right? And so I think that, yeah, it was a really humbling experience to be able to, yeah, be witness to people figuring their shit out and that in some of their communities, they're the most radical person in their groups, right? And because, and even though that that's a distance between how I do my radical being doesn't mean that they weren't willing to get at the root of how they were showing up. Because that's ultimately what being radical is at the end of the day, grasping at the root, right? And I think there are people who were willing to start to tug and some people's, you know, roots were in there. And some people had a little bit easier time pulling out, right? But I think, yeah, that process in itself, I think is just so, I just learned so much, right? And I think my research is about thinking about where we do that learning. And like, that is a prime example of like, I learned some of the deepest lesson. It was about being in my body and not necessarily about like, we read the Bhagavad Gita and and things like that. But it wasn't like, oh, I'm going to be like a master scholar of Sanskrit and yoga to be able to say that I learned something from this, right? It was like, no, being with these people and being myself and learning how we can be together differently transformed my life. Yeah. People will push back if they're not ready. And sadly enough, that's a large portion of our country. And can we hold space for it? And can we hold space for it and have compassion for that? And I wrestle. Yeah. I wrestle with it constantly. Like, I mean, don't get it twisted. We don't all have the same work to do. Oh, no, no, no. No. Don't get it twisted. No, 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 no. I'm not out here being like, listen, we're going to sit for all these white feelings. That's not what I'm saying. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, hell no. That's not happening. If we find ourselves in relationship with white folks, you know, with cis folks, with people who are different from me, and I find myself in genuine relationship with that. How do we use the trust and the intimacy we've built to hold space for that wrestling, right? And that I'm much more willing to give that space to someone that I love and care about 
and that I don't have to be responsible for holding that space for everybody, that I don't have to do that for a random person on the street, right? And I can be compassionate to somebody and also say like, that's not my work to do. I think there's a difference between like, I want you to eat, just not at my table. But when people hear that, they say, if you can't be at my table, you starve. And I'm not saying that, right? Like we're saying everybody eat, just not here. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> I yeah. get that. There's literally boundaries that's threaded through this entire conversation and mm-hmm. in how to show up for ourselves and others mm-hmm. in this particular way. It's like, you need to work on that. I'm going to yeah. be over here. I'm going to be over here while you do something. Eating these wings. <laughs> vegan wings, whatever. <laughs> like, if you, I'll check back in with you later. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> but You don't need vegan wings. No, but I, I want to be inclusive. I want to be inclusive. inclusive. <laughs> I was like, you will not. You're like, no, thank you. That's Satan. <laughs> you ain't tricking me thinking you going to be a wing. That's good, but it ain't the same thing. I'm like, it tastes just like it. You're like, no, it does no, not. No, it does not. No, it does not. I mean, this you definitely had that that experience with food sometimes. And vegan food, I'd be like, mm, I know what this is not. It's safe. It's one a thing. Cheeseburger. Yeah, but like, no, it's not. But it's tasty though. I can get like chicken tastes like chicken, and that's it. Yeah, that's it. Chicken tastes like chicken. The only thing that tastes like chicken is chicken. Exactly. Everything tastes like chicken. Everything tastes like 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 fake nuggets, like chicken nuggets. Like no, just call those nuggets. Period. Don't don't put chicken. I just that's just eat vegetables. Shit. I make him a green smoothie every morning. Thank you very much. Yes. I'm being taken care of over here. I just, we just got called a tangent. I was just like, I'm going to talk about this right now. He tried the other day. He was like, I don't want a green smoothie. And that was like the second or third day. I was like, what are you going to eat? And he's like, um, I'm not going to have breakfast. And I was like, I'm making you a green smoothie. No, I was like, I have a It's your choice if you want to drink it, but I am making it for you. Yeah. Yeah. I'm going to live longer based off of. Smoothies, <laughs> Brittany has made for me for sure, a hundred percent. Look at that. That's love. It is. That's love. Yes. Somebody cares about your digestive system. That's love. Yeah, it really is. Claire Huxtable, me up, yo. <laughs> Claire Huxtable, me up. Girl, Claire was like, "What you doing? <laughs> Eat this. Eat that. Done." <laughs> okay, I want to talk a little bit more about abolition. And I want to talk a little bit more about that and like what your definition is of abolition and how sometimes it can get misunderstood because I feel like it can a lot. Definitely. Okay. So I think my favorite thing about abolition is that it really doesn't have a definitive answer. And I think that's the point. And I think that makes people really uncomfortable. And that is like the starting point of being like, this is why we need abolition because people have to reckon with the things that make them feel uncomfortable. So I think I come from a like a lineage that thinks about abolition, particularly when we're thinking about like carceral systems, so prisons, police, psychiatric institutions, things that kind of incarcerate people, right? And I think ultimately abolition in the way that I take it up. So I'm not saying that this is the answer, but the way that I use it in my work is to think about the eradication of like a carceral society, right? A society that not just says that, you know, police and prisons are the answer to our social problems, but also like eradication of our society that thinks that something like incarceration makes sense, right? Like there's this idea where a lot of people can be like, oh yeah, like we see the ways that 
police brutality is real. We see the ways that like prison has a negative impact, but there are these ways of thinking that are still very carceral, right? We call them carceral logics, right? The ways that when people hurt us, we think they deserve to be punished. When people uh, mess up, we try to ban them from our communities. These ideas that replicate what the prison actually does, which is strip people of their humanity, which is commodify them, which is exploit their labor. And so I think that there are ways and like abolition for me is not just about like, yes, no. And people think it's like, oh, you're just going to like open up all the prisons and then what? And it's just like, well, you're not wrong. Like, yes, free them all. And I think there's also this idea of saying, it's kind of like that question I posed before, like, what are actually the things that are going to keep our community safe? What are going to be the things that prevent violence in our communities, right? And so like, for me, abolition is also access to housing, access to food, access to mental health care, health care in general, to dignified employment, to communities that are built and have relationships with each other, right? Like how many times, you know, I want to know my neighbors. I want to know the people that I live near. I want to know how I can participate in that community. And so for me, abolition is also a praxis. So like what I said before, so it's like our kind of commitments, like ways we see the world of seeing, like understanding that like racial capitalism and cis-heteropatriarchy and colonialization and imperialism all shape this world that we've created and to get free we have to get rid of those things and so i think those are like that lens that we see like our politics our commitments and then also our practices right so i think you know some of my most recent research was thinking about how that practice shows up particularly in the lives of black trans people and thinking about like the ways that people build communities the ways that people you know build relationships that are built on like the principle of the erotic and the way that audrey lord talks about the erotic you know these kind of like non-punitive practices, practices of collectivity, ways that we get to be in the world that push up against prisons and police making sense. So that's how kind of I think about abolition and how it shows up in my teaching. I mean, I try to use it as something that drives the way that I teach in the world, right? So like when I'm holding space, whether it's yoga, my like, you know, university classroom or community space that I'm facilitating, you know, I'm always trying to center relationship, like building trust, building relationships with people. You know, even when I teach yoga, I always make people say their names, like things like that. It's something little, but it like makes people feel like they're a part of something, right? And, you know, we hold people accountable without punishing them, right? We can say like, this isn't okay. And we can make space for like the context in which this happened instead of just being like, that's wrong, you're punished, you're out, things like that. And then also just like help people figure out how to like have collective vulnerability, right? Like we need vulnerability to imagine a new way of being. And I think so many times, at least when I think about in the classroom, I've mostly been working with college students most recently. It's hard to be vulnerable in the classroom. It's hard to share your idea, especially if you think differently than other people in the room think, right? And we have to create spaces where people feel vulnerable enough to really imagine in more radical ways. So that's how I bring abolition into like my actual practice. But it's something that, yeah, I'm, I'm committed to and thinking about in lots of different ways. I love that. The world needs it. The way you talk about it, I sense like there's like a gentleness in it. There's a fierceness, but there's also like a gentleness really when relating back to relating and relationships. 
I always go to nervous system. That's the first place I go when I think about these kind of things. And I think it's creating safety to be in the space of collectivity and community and ultimately change. I think that's a huge part, that safety part, because I've been living in Minneapolis for the past five years. And so I used to live around the corner from where George Floyd was murdered. And, you know, that store, I used to go to that store all the time. That was like my local corner store. And, you know, like I came here to like do my graduate degree and I knew I wanted to talk about abolition. I wasn't really sure how. And then literally like the uprising sparked here. And then from where I live now, it was about a little less than a mile from where the police precinct burned down. And a lot of the fires and protests were happening. So it was like very much in my neighborhood, very much in my orbit. And I think the thing that I saw really up close was just people wanting to be safe, right? And people feeling like the police are not making us feel any safer. They're actually making us feel terrified. In the beginning is of that, something I think people don't really talk about if you're not local was you know, when a lot of those uprisings were happening, there were a lot of these like white supremacists, extremists coming in from out of town to like start trouble, you know? So like they found out later that like, you know, these people who were not from our communities started fires, blah, blah, blah. So, you know, the first couple nights after the uprising, our communities, especially the communities that were close to these kind of hot spots, where we had a community meeting in the park and people were doing all night, taking turns, doing rounds around the neighborhood to make sure that people weren't setting people's bushes on fire and shit, right? Like these real, like tangible ways of like, we've already seen an abolitionist response to what was happening because, you know, some of these people I had never met, we meet in the park, we're on a signal chat, we're on, you know, and now we're coordinating you know, these people are just making sure that things are okay, relaying, taking shifts, things like that. So like, that was like a real approach to community safety that I don't think people recognize that like people were tapping into, right? We're like, the police aren't coming. These fires are happening. Violence is happening. We have to keep ourselves and each other safe. And I think that's really the question underneath a lot of it is like the safety, you know, because police and prisons were not created for safety. But our cultural narrative says, this is the person you call when you feel unsafe. And I think, you know, the reality is, is that police are protect property. They protect private property. There's like a whole history lesson about like how the police first came about because basically with slave, like slave patrols, runaway slaves were groups of vigilantes were catching these runaway enslaved folks, right? And that was literally the start of what we know to be police today, right? I think there's all these ways that we have to reckon with that is not where safety lives and also humans deserve to feel safe. That's where that gentleness comes from, I think. is like, I am always trying to like, that's eyes on the prize, y'all. Like we're actually trying to figure out how to be safe. And I think that people are threatened by difference, right? And feel threatened when people express feelings and emotions differently, right? And that's because we're taught that when other people react like that, that that's unsafe to us. And so we're allowed to be unsafe to them in response to that. And so it is that kind of like, what do I need to feel grounded and safe as a traumatized person, as an oppressed person, right? And how do I not project that onto others 
because they're wrestling with their safety. Because at the end of the day, we all deserve that. And I think that's also a fundamental belief. Some of the work I do is talking about transformative justice, which is an approach to responding to violence without causing more violence. And I think oftentimes people say, you know, if you believe in transformative justice, you have to believe that people can change. And I do think it's true, but I also think you have to believe that people have the capacity to be deeply fucked up, including yourself. And I think that is actually really important because when we recognize that we all have the capacity to be fucking monsters, that then we have more compassion for the ways in which people end up being in ways that they don't necessarily want to or aspire to be. And I think it lets us realize that we're human, that we're going to make mistakes, that we're going to mess up, that causing harm is something that's part of the human experience, right? We're never going to not cause harm. Like it happens, right? But if we spend so much of our energy trying to avoid conflict and avoid any type of implication of harm, we don't actually grow the muscle to repair when we do. And so I think for me, that's where I'm just like, remember that really this is about safety. This is about repair. This is about like sticking together in the face of the state. The reality is that the state wants us to every person for themselves, right? Because that's how the state stays in power. When we recognize that we need each other, that we, when we come together, we leverage that power. That's when we actually get to transform shit. Part of it is like humility on our own part to have compassion for other folks to that see the world differently than we do. Oh gosh. Yes. Yes, yes, yes. Shit. <laughs> Thank you, Kate. Thank you for, you know, that last piece. Mm-hmm. It's so important because, you know, there's fear in a lot of it. And, you know, the way that you just explained it and that gentleness that I felt, you know, I think that's we can hold accountable in a loving way. Right. We can, you know, call in instead of call out. We can be in collaboration even with those that, you know, we don't agree with. Like this is all possible. And then live our truth, right? Be authentically ourselves and be in relationship the way we want to be in relationship and be with the erotic the way we want to be with the erotic and all of these things. I feel like we could, there's so much more I want to do, but we need to. Last thing about. No, I'm like, oh, now I want to get into like how it shows up in the erotic. So we might. Might have to maybe have you back if you open it. We'll say. I can say something quick about that. Is that I don't know if you've ever read the uses of the erotic by Audre Lord. I don't know if Pieces you've read that it. essay. Yeah. So definitely everybody go read it. Audre Lord's a genius, and I think you know one of my teachers, Dr. Julian Glover, who's an amazing Black trans scholar organizer, kind of taught me about. We were having this really great conversation about the essay, and taught me that like. Audre Lorde is saying that the erotic is a relational ethic. It's a way for us to be in relation to other people and that the erotic is something that we share and that we have this erotic power in us, but we also share it. And for her, it was like, we have these sensations in our bodies and then we have our feelings. And oftentimes we're taught that we have these sensations and we need to shut down our feelings in regards to the sensation to be able to manage that, right? And she calls that separation the pornographic. Lots of people misinterpret that and think that Audre Lorde is like anti-porn. That's not true. But it's this more idea that she's saying this separation of like suppressing your feelings and your sensation, that's when it becomes pornographic, right? And that cis-heteropatriarchy wants us to do our, our sexualities in that way that suppress our actual feelings from our sensation. But when we actually have these sensations, we recognize the fullness of our feeling, that's the erotic. 
And I think that the erotic as like a relational ethic is an abolitionist practice, right? Because when we're saying I'm moving from this place of fullness, where I feel the full extent of my feelings, full extent of my sensations, and I'm connecting to be with you in a way that we get to build together, not just I assume that, oh, I like you, so this means this, this, and this. Oh, I love you, so this means this and this. We're partners, it means this and this. No, we get to co-create this dynamic that we're in to center our joy and our pleasure. Then that is what the erotic as power is. And when we build relationships, like that's like how we see an abolitionist world. When our relations are built on this versus then I'm in relation to someone because capitalist gain, right? Like I can exploit this to make this blah, 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 right? So I think for me, that's why the erotic and abolition go hand in hand. But I'd love to talk about it more one other time. Thank you for saying that because yeah. I really, I wanted to get that point. And I knew Audrey was going to be part of this conversation at some point. I'm so glad that you brought that up. Okay. The last, the last bit got me fired up. I was just like, I'm living a good life right yes, now. <laughs> yes, yes. Oh, okay. So we're going to move into some rapid fire. Answer short but sweet if you can. It's really hard for me, but I'm going to work really hard. <laughs> <laughs> you and me both. You know this. Okay. Something that makes you belly laugh. Oh, bad TV. <laughs> <laughs> yes. I concur. Something you're insecure about. Oh, my little pooch of a belly. I have just this little pooch that no matter what size I am, it's just got a little pooch. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> we both have to pooch. I'm embrace this drawing. I mean, I love my <laughs> pooch, but you know, I'm shy. I'm shy about yeah, pooch. I'm not yeah. I feel you. Something that brings you pleasure. Mm, being with other black trans people. When was the last time you cried? Oh my God, like before this, in the shower, getting ready. Yeah, oh. all the time, every time. I just want to give that to Man Enough because you yeah, totally took yeah. that from Man Enough. I'm going to ask you, that's a good question. <laughs> Man Enough podcast. I love it. I'm love crying it. on the regs. Uh, okay, I'm a tenderoni. Tenderoni. Okay, this is my favorite question. If you could have a threesome with two people. It could be famous people. It could be, I sometimes like to throw Gumby into the mix for some reason, green, flexible. I don't know. One time there was a unicorn involved, but like just riding the unicorn, you know, it's, there's lots of things. Oh, one, one person. Oh, I remember Elizabeth was in the moss and yes. So it could also be an orgy. It could be a sexual experience. Go. Wow. With anybody, anything. Wow. Yes. You know, one of my fears during the pandemic was like, when am I going to go to an orgy again? <laughs> so I think I would love, it's been a while. So I would love to have an orgy. You know, it's so funny when initially I thought you were going to like do celebrity or something. And the first person who popped in my head was Rihanna. Don't know why. Yeah. Yes. Um, but I just feel like she's such a badass and she's just so fine. And I just feel like we would just like smoke and kick it and probably have a great sex. And then there could also be lots of other people. I'm non-discriminatory about that. Yeah. <laughs> Let's go with six some and Rihanna's in the mix. And I would just say like really anybody who feels like really good in their skin and knows what makes them feel good and is like, do this to me. And I'll be like, yes. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Yes, I felt that. 
you know, like, like I just mm. want someone to be like, I want this. And I say, yes, regardless of gender, regardless <laughs> of whatever, just yes. yes, full embodied. Yes. I agree. That's a good response. Oh yeah. Yeah. And I also agree to Rihanna. <laughs> yeah, Rihanna. Bless. Rihanna. Uh, yeah. Oh. Rihanna would throw down like in the best possible oh, way. Oh, absolutely. Like, Rihanna and Falcor. Done. You said Falcor? Yeah. <laughs> For some reason. I don't know. We're at Falcor. But like riding, again, because when I picked a unicorn before, I, it was like, oh, and I'm like, no, like riding, the, like being on the unicorn's back in like a beautiful way. <laughs> right on the back of Falcor and me and Rihanna are smoking it up and just like, life is cheddar. <laughs> Wow. Give it to me, do this thing. I want to add that I like want to be on a boat. I don't know why, but I was just like, a boat would make this better. A boat. I've wanted someone to take me on a boat date for like a minute. And then you know what? I was like, you know what? Fuck that. I'm going to learn how to sail. And I'm going to take myself on yes. a boat date. Yes. That's yes. what I'm going to do. Yes. And it, maybe I it'll become that. a boat orgy. Boom. You're going to open yourself to the yes. energy that's going to come to you. Yes. It is. I aspire it's for a boat orgy. I aspire <laughs> for a boat, boat orgy. Done. Boat orgy. Absolutely. Check, check. Check, check. Bless. Yeah. If you could have a superpower, what would it be? Mm, I debate between flying and morphing into like whatever I need to morph into. Because sometimes I'd be like, it would be really great to just like fly or like teleport, right? But then other times I'd be like, ooh, it would be really good if I could be a lion in this instance, right? <laughs> I think the, the morphing into other things, I would go, probably go with that. Because I could morph into something that flies. So I'll go with the morph. I was thinking the same yeah, thing. You can morph true. into a bird. Yeah, I, and then I, you I, could fly. I'm reading Octavia Butler right now. Uh, Wild Seed, the main character, has the ability to turn into any animal that they want. Like, and She uh, turns into a dolphin and like literally has a flirting incident with like another male dolphin and is like super curious about what is it about. Like, oh, th- this is interesting. And then they're just like swimming, like brushed to the skin and like going in the water. It gets real. It's like, oh, look, I'm, I've never even thought about this before. You know, dolphins are like one of the only other mammals besides humans that have sex for pleasure. Yes. I, I did mm-hmm. know that. I did and know I'm that. just like, mm-hmm. yes. Yeah. I'm trying to <laughs> dolphin. Dolphin. Not really, but like, I'm trying to be a dolphin that fucks a dolphin. You know, like, anyway. <laughs> What did they just say? <laughs> dolphin? Did you just say fucking a dolphin? Don't want to fuck unicorns or no. falcor or dolphins. It's an open question, y'all. It's more the energy yes. of exploring the erotic. Boom. <laughs> Mic drop. And, and that's what we We have fully come full circle. Full circle. <laughs> yes. Okay. Uh, Kate, this has been amazing and fun and all the things. And thank you so much for just the way you move through the world and all that you do. And yeah, I'm so happy to know you and I'm so happy to see your face right now. Yes. We literally just, when we first signed on, we just stared at Kate for like like a full minute. What do you got going on? Is there anything you want to share with us? Well... I am moving to Canada. Yes. I'm going to be an an incoming professor at the University of Toronto at OISE, which is the Ontario Institute of Studies of Education. So I'm hoping to continue to do my research about Black trans experiences and abolitionist pedagogies while I'm in Toronto. So that's what's next for me is I'm, I'm moving. I'm trying to do an international move. And um, I'll be a professor come the fall. So 
in August, in early August, I'm going to be working with some other trans scholars to do a trans freedom school where we're doing some workshops that are specifically for young people, their families, their educators about different things going on around trans freedom. And so the first one is actually tomorrow, today, sometime. Amazing professor who's talking about like the history of like trans folks. She's a professor of trans history. And so I'm really excited about that to be working with other trans scholars about how to support trans young people. So I'd say that like anybody look into your local abolitionist efforts, local efforts supporting trans youth and throw your dollars, throw your time, throw your energy to those efforts. Um, I think they're really holding people together right now. So Yay. That's what I got going on. <laughs> yeah, indeed. Beautiful. Thank oh, you, Kate. Amazing. Thank you. That was so beautiful. Holy shit. I physically feel like my body is just like, yeah. you got some things to think about. <laughs> like, well, that's not a feeling. But like, I have a sensation of like, just like my body's processing something right now. Like I, yeah. I listen to and heard just like a lot of wisdom. I feel like, whew, we didn't talk about it and I'm feeling it. It's amazing. Yeah, I'm loving it. It's great when we can connect with our bodies. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Key is such a gift, such a joy. Absolutely. I've known Key for a very long time and it's just so beautiful to see them and where they are now. Just as, as they said the same, you know, like thriving. Yes. Yeah. And um, oh, there was so much that we talked about that you're right, that really like resonated and landed. Mm-hmm. I loved the last piece. And I, I said, I knew we were going to probably talk about Audre Lord the way that we talk about the erotic and our relationship with that. Adrian Marie Brown talks a lot about that. It's yes. in our book, Pleasure Activism. Mm-hmm. I love this idea of coming back to this idea of safety and being in our bodies and feeling that connection, like not disconnecting. Like yeah. We are taught to disconnect. To run. And the disconnection is really why we are where we are. Mm-hmm. People running away from themselves. Yeah. Not, not and each other. Yeah, and each and other. other. And not feeling and dealing with the, their internal healing. You know, we talked about this in the beginning, don't necessarily, people don't necessarily have the tools to do that. Not everyone does. And it's the system is designed that way to keep us stuck and to keep a lot of people stuck, right? Based on the systems of oppression. And so what a revolutionary act to feel into our feelings, to foster connection and to live as authentically as we possibly can. Yeah, I I, I know. I'm kind of speechless in the face of it. Mm -hmm. It's like there's no no more I could say Mm -mm. on this topic. (laughs) <laughs> it's just like mm-hmm. like that's what I'll say mm-hmm. that's it I did want to add something I have more to say because I've always said more to say Feel free. us uh, talking with Key about like our teacher training and how that both impacted us was really healing for me mm-hmm. um, just having that conversation yeah. you know, we've talked about it a little but not quite like that mm-hmm. and so you know to really see the ways we both learned and grew from that experience it's really beautiful. And I just, as we were talking about that, I was like, this is it. This is what the whole thing is about. Sure. It's about being in community, being in connection, pushing our edges, speaking our truths, holding hard truths, mm-hmm. looking at ourselves, you know, for me personally, looking at myself, the way I show up, yeah. um, the way I might be creating harm or, you know, creating harm or causing harm, but holding myself accountable, not backing down from that within myself, yes. but uh, holding myself lovingly accountable. Right. Mm-hmm. And so I'm really glad that we could have that conversation as well. It was really beautiful. Yeah. I feel that also in the space of being a cis male saying like I've been embarrassing and including myself in that mm-hmm. and being like sure. okay with that. Yeah. But it's like, yeah, 
how have I contributed to this thing? And then yeah. what can I do to release and mm-hmm. grow and evolve beyond yeah. it? Absolutely. What Key said towards the end is like, acknowledging, yes, that people can change and also acknowledging that people can be fucked up. Yes. <laughs> right? Embracing all the pieces is what I always say and what I try to do. So mm-hmm. it's really beautiful. Thank you so much for listening. Follow Key at Queer Brew Hacks on Instagram. That's Q-U-E-E-R-B-R-U-J-X and Key underscore Dorian on Twitter. Follow me at sexually underscore liberated on Instagram and check out my website at com. And we're on Twitter now. Check us out at K Table Podcast. Follow me at Nick Anthony Photo on Instagram and check out my website at nickantony.com. Editing by Audionauts, music by Greta Hopmer. And please like, subscribe, and follow this podcast. Share this episode and this podcast with someone who you think would benefit. And please leave us a review. Five stars if you're feeling generous. It really does help. Publish for the kitchen table. Love, y'all. Until next time.